Good morning. A little bit under the weather this morning. A virus in the household has called up to me. I remember growing up and uh, being in church and whenever the pastor would be sick and have to speak, I would feel so bad for him to have to do that. And so I hope you guys feel bad for me. <laughs> I joke, no. Anyway, this is the uh, final Sunday for our sermon series in the Gospel according to Luke, The Coming of the King. Um, and next week again, Rick Bartholomew will be in the pulpit. Then following him, Shane will be in the pulpit. And I believe that's the first Sunday in September. But Communion Sunday will be the following Sunday, the second Sunday in September when Jeff returns. So just keep that in mind. That's where we're going. Um, last week, we looked at Luke 4, 1 through 15, where we talked about uh, Satan's temptations to Jesus. And we uh, looked at that through the lens of dissecting the DNA of a lie. And today we're continuing into the next narrative section, which scholars notice like the, the programmatic text in Luke's gospel. It's the announcement of Jesus' ministry, that his ministry is underway. And the text that I'm going to be reading from is and preaching from is what exactly Jesus' ministry will entail. So we're looking at Luke 4, 16 through 30. Please follow along with me as I read. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has, is, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do, did in Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up this word for us to understand this morning, that you would penetrate our hearts with it, and that we would leave here all knowing that you are a gracious God, a gracious and merciful God who loves us so much more than we could ever fathom. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, early last month, I was doing some reading, and I came across an aviation-related news article that I found interesting. Uh, it, took, there was a, it, it relayed this incident, an in-flight flight incident that took place about a month ago on a uh, routine flight from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Rapid City, South Dakota. 
not sure if that's a popular route, but that's what happened. Uh, the aircraft was carrying about 130 people on board. And let me preface this first by saying that for those of you who are terrified of flying, like if my wife was in here, don't worry, everything is fine. Nobody was hurt in this in-flight incident. Everything ended safely. At the very, at the very least, though, this was an incredibly embarrassing mistake on the part of the flight crew. So let me, let me explain what happened. Again, this was a flight, about a 45-minute jump from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Rapid City, South Dakota. And from every, everything that I've read about this flight, it's, everything seemed normal. I mean, uh, from takeoff to cruising altitude, the flight crew was relatively experienced. They knew what they were doing. They were communicating with air traffic control well. But as the airplane got closer to its airport that it was landing at, Rapid City, South Dakota, there was a breakdown in communication. Something went wrong. The controllers, they made sure that the air crew ensured that they had the airport in sight. And the flight crew responded that, yes, we indeed have the airport in sight. But in the end, this airliner accidentally landed at the wrong airport. Instead of landing at, Re at Rapid City Regional Airport, the aircraft landed 10 miles away at Ellsworth Air Force Base. Now, this incident is still under investigation, so it's not entirely clear exactly everything that happened. But what, what's most likely the out, what most likely happened is that from several thousand feet up, the air traffic controllers made sure that they had the airport in sight. And uh, what they noted is that Ellsworth Air Force Base and Rapid City Regional Airport look almost identical from the air. The runways are situated in almost the exact same direction. So everything looked normal. But what likely happened, as one aviation expert in the news article that I read noted, he said that this event, which actually he said is kind of unsettling that landing at the wrong airport happens more than we think, but anyway, he said that this type of incident usually occurs because of something called target fixation. He said that this occurs when one pilot is so fixed on the runway or the, the waypoint that they don't bother checking to verify with either air traffic control or their charts. And as you can imagine, the air crew must have assumed in this situation that they were on the same page as their flight plan, as their charts, as air traffic control, until they landed at the wrong airport. And as the story went on to tell, as the military MPs boarded the aircraft with, uh, with guns and dogs and made them uh, put down their window shades, they must have realized at that point, if not beforehand, uh-oh, uh, this isn't good. Well, <clears throat> in the same way that target fixation led this air crew into an incredibly embarrassing and potentially dangerous situation. It seems as if the people of Nazareth in our text this morning also had a kind of functional target fixation as well. Now we'll talk about the content of this passage as we move on into the sermon, but for now consider the broad movement of this text. Jesus, he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stands in front of the synagogue, in front of all the people, and he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. After he finishes reading and expounding upon the text, Jesus gives his, uh, I guess we might say his mic drop. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop and walk away. Um, <clears throat> initially, the text tells us that the people of Nazareth were in amazement. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. As we'll talk about later, they're actually pleasantly surprised at the grace that Jesus is announcing. That wasn't the message, and we'll talk about why, that wasn't the message they were expecting to hear at that point. But then Jesus continues by further elaborating upon the implications of what he just said in verses 23 through 27. And very quickly, the crowd's reaction changes from happy intrigue into a riotous fury. They want him dead. 
You see, the people of Nazareth, we might say, had target fixation. Jesus overturned, in the course of one sermon, two of their assumptions. Maybe I'll do the same today. They thought they were on the same page as God. They thought that as Jesus, they thought that everything that they had believed, that they were on the same page with God. But Jesus, as Jesus preaches in their midst, they realize that Jesus is essentially saying, you're not on the same page as God. And as a result, on a dime, as the text tells us, they turn with the intent of killing him. Observing the broad movement of this text in this way may lead us to ask a legitimate question, do we have target fixation too? In other words, are we on the same page as God? Do our concerns, do our goals, does the purpose in which we're really living for match with what God calls us to? When we peer into the message of grace that Jesus delivers in this text this morning, and when we meditate upon it and really understand the implications of what Jesus is saying here, I think we'll find that we might too have a kind of functional target fixation. So what I want us to see from this text is that Jesus and Luke confront our target fixation by showing us that what Jesus declares in Nazareth is a message of grace, incredible grace, that we could peer into for the rest of our lives and never come to the bottom of. And then he unpacks, after he tells us this message of grace, he relays the implications of this grace. And so those are our two points. That's where we're going. We're going to look at the message of grace, namely the content that Jesus proclaims, and then we're going to look at the implications of grace. What exactly does that mean, and how does Jesus kind of flush out the implications in verses 23 through 27? So first we hear the message of grace. Let me begin, though, by painting sort of the background and the context for us in this passage. The narrative is set in the context of the synagogue in Nazareth. And in verse 16, it tells us that it was apparently the custom of Jesus on the Sabbath to enter the synagogue regularly. As a pious Jew, the synagogue would have been a place where uh, it would have been the central of religious and social life among the people, among the Jewish people. A normal synagogue service, like the one we find Jesus participating in, would have consisted in the scriptures, the reading of scripture as the focal point of the service. The scriptures would have often been read in Hebrew and paraphrased into Aramaic, depending upon the locale of where the synagogue was. Then following the scripture reading, if a qualified male was present, which is the case in our text this morning, then he would expound upon the scriptures. He would give some commentary on them. We know that in later developments of the synagogue that they were on a sort of three-year reading cycle. So over the course of three years, they would cover all of the Torah and the prophets. And then finally, in addition to the focus, the central focus on the scriptures, prayer was also a central function of a synagogue service as well. So this is the context in which we find Jesus in our passage. And specifically, we see him participating as one of those qualified males who would have been called upon to read from the scriptures and then expound upon the scriptures, specifically in this case from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So let's begin by looking specifically at this announcement in verses 18 through 19, where Jesus quotes from Isaiah and then his comment in verse 21 after he rolls up the scroll of Isaiah. Now, some of you first might be wondering, earlier in the service, why in the world did I have Gabe read from Leviticus? Leviticus 25, what was it, 8 through 22? Am I just a a cruel person like that? Well, maybe, but uh, I had Gabe read that because Jesus' announcement in verses 18 through 19 is framed as a jubilee proclamation. 
The Jubilee, as we read about in Leviticus 25, 8 through 22, that's the text where the Jubilee is introduced in the Old Testament. It was a provision put in place for the poor and the disenfranchised within Israel. If an Israelite family, for instance, fell in hard times and they were forced into debt or they were forced to sell their land or they were forced maybe into indentured servitude, the Jubilee was a provision put in place so that every 50 years there would be a reversal of fortune for the poor and the disenfranchised. The text in Leviticus tells us that on the Day of Atonement, every 50 years, the high priest would come out and he would blow his trumpet as the announcement that this is the beginning of the year of Jubilee. At such a time, the ancestral land, the land that's been the family for however many years, was returned to its original tenants. Those Israelites who were forced into indentured servitude were released immediately and set free. All debts were unequivocally canceled, and the land was called to lay fallow for an entire year. In short, the Jubilee was a provision of incredible grace and mercy for those within Israel who most needed grace and mercy. So now, although the passage that Jesus is quoting here in Luke 4, 18 through 19, they aren't, it isn't a passage from Leviticus. These are, in fact, two different passages from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, with a little bit of Isaiah 58 thrown into it. These passages, nevertheless, take up this imagery from the Jubilee, and they propel it into the future, envisioning a future climactic Jubilee that would be proclaimed and enacted by the Messiah. These Isaiah passages, they look forward to a new Jubilee that would accomplish something far better than the original Jubilee could ever accomplish, because this final Jubilee that the prophet Isaiah envisions and that Jesus is quoting here in Luke's gospel looks forward to a final age of rest, where not only would God's people be freed from sin and death, but they would also experience restoration, the the Old Testament ideal of shalom, of fullness, of human flourishing. So when Jesus declares, after reading these passages from the scroll in Isaiah, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he's essentially saying, in me, right now, this new climactic jubilee finds its realization, right now. In short, this is the gospel according to Jesus. But within this gospel proclamation, as I'll call it, in verses 18 through 19, notice that Jesus also targets a specific group of people. In keeping with the text from Isaiah, he says that he's come to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set it free or to release those who are oppressed. Now, on the one hand, it's true. That Luke's gospel, more than the other three gospels, more than Matthew, Mark, and John, emphasizes Jesus' concern for the socially outcast of society, including women, the poor and disenfranchised, Gentiles, tax collectors, and so forth. When we look at the rest of Luke Acts taken as a whole, we often see Jesus and the early church exhibit a special care for those who are on the margins of society, for people that are materially and socially poor and outcast, for the physically blind and so forth. And in this way, Luke and Jesus encourage us and they challenge us to approach people on the margins of society in the same way. They lead us to ask the question, do we have an eye for the poor? Do we have compassion for those people 
on the margins of society. Jesus certainly did. But on the other hand, Jesus' address to the poor, to the captives, to the blind, to the oppressed, and so forth, in our text this morning, in no way excludes the financially or materially advantaged. Nor is Jesus, in our text, demonizing wealth as such. Wealth does come with unique dangers, and it's probably true that in general the financially and materially poor and disenfranchised are often the ones who know of their spiritual depravity the most. Uh, Revelation three fourteen through 22, when John, John and Jesus address the church of Laodicea, it kind of draws that same parallel there. But that's not always the case. That's not always true. So with that said, and given the background to this Isaiah quotation, when Jesus targets his proclamation to the poor, to the, to the outcasts, to the blind, and so forth, he's fundamentally addressing not social distinctions, but those who recognize at its foundation their spiritual neediness. In other words, Jesus is fundamentally addressing not social distinctions between rich and materially rich and materially poor necessarily, but he's addressing everyone who knows intimately well their spiritual impoverishment. Anyone who has come to terms with the reality of their neediness, anyone who is intimately aware that things are not the way they're supposed to be, and anyone who knows their desperate need for mercy. To such people, Jesus will say in our text this morning, come and find mercy in me. The passage is often viewed as a good summary of Jesus' entire ministry in Luke's gospel is also a good summary on this text too. And that's Luke 19.10, where after Jesus confronts this tax collector Zacchaeus and he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, uh, Jesus proclaims this. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus here in that text proclaims salvation to Zacchaeus, a man on the margins of society. And the salvation he invites us into in our text, wrapped in this imagery of the Jubilee, is not only forgiveness from sin. It is that, but it's more than that. It's true spiritual rest and wholeness. And even, as we'll talk about in a second, even eventual physical wholeness in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a salvation that brings our relationship with our God whole again. And it promises change. It promises change in our own lives, change that begins now. And again, it's available for those who, one, embrace their humble estate, embrace their neediness. Do you see your spiritual neediness? Do you see your sin? Do you see the need? And then two, it, it, it calls those who will then embrace Christ as the answer. This gospel message, again, is not only liberating because it proclaims forgiveness of sins, but it's also liberating because it proclaims true, holistic restoration, and even physical restoration. Keep in mind that when, throughout the gospel accounts, when we read these various miracles, these incredible miracles of Jesus healing the sick, of restoring sight to the blind, and so forth, those aren't merely uh, texts that tell us what Jesus will then do to us spiritually. They're also foreshadowing what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth when physical wholeness, when we receive resurrected bodies and we were made physically whole again. Sometimes it seems like we get target fixation by, by, by merely and only spiritualizing everything Jesus has to say. But the redemptive historical goal of salvation this, new, this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, we'll not, we'll not only find rest and shalom 
for our souls, but find rest and shalom in that we're going to be we're going to be in a restored new creation. That is a telos. That is the goal of where redemptive history is going. Nevertheless, for right now, Christ invites us to come to him in the totality of our weaknesses. We come to Christ in our functional spiritual blindness and we ask him to give us sight, to give us sight into the word of God, give us sight even into the needs of others in our community. We come in our moral poverty and we ask him for forgiveness. We come with the daily vestiges of sin that we we carry around and the cycle of sin that we sometimes find ourselves in as Christians day in and day out, not sure how we can break it, but we come to him with confidence that the Holy Spirit will work to help us overcome those cycles of sin that we find ourselves in. And we also come with confidence because in him we have hope that Jesus has done just as he said he will And we have hope that he will do eventually what he promises he will do. This is the incredible message of grace that Jesus proclaims in our text this morning. It's a message, again, I said at the outset, that we could endlessly peer into and never reach the bottom. It's a message that calls us fundamentally to come to terms with who we are as spiritually needy people. As sinners, yes. As people that are blind, yes. As people that are poor, yes. But the gospel doesn't leave us in discouragement because it promises that Christ has done something about it. That is the message of grace that Jesus proclaims in this text. And this leads us to our second point, the implications of this message of grace. Thus far in this passage, the people of Nazareth must must have been listening intently to what Jesus had to say. And after Jesus finishes, the text tells us that they marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Commentators note that the people of Nazareth here, they're, just, they're not only marveling that, uh, they're not only surprised and marveling at the hopeful character of what Jesus has to say here, but they're also marveling that this Jesus is a pretty good speaker. Um, you know, this little Jesus who's grown up among us, he's turned into quite the man who's able to, able to preach and able to speak well. But the problem is that Jesus and the people of Nazareth are at this point working on two different assumptions. Now, it's impossible first to to peer into the minds of the people of Nazareth to determine precisely what they were thinking. But commentators point to a number of examples from the first century um, that indicate that a number of Jews of the day were looking for liberation from the pagans within their midst, perhaps envisioned in political or economic or social terms. According to the Jewish mindset, God was unequivocally for them, and certainly not for their enemies. He was expected to liberate Israel from their enemies, their enemies that surrounded them. So when they hear Jesus making this announcement of grace, which is grace for everyone, not just the Jews, they're astonished. They're shocked. They didn't expect this message of grace. Note, too, that they also might have picked up on Jesus' omission of the very next line in Isaiah. Notice that in verse 19, where Jesus says, uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus actually doesn't continue the quote in Isaiah 61, because if he, would to, if he were to continue the quote in Isaiah 61, the very next line reads, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus omits that part doesn't quite meet their expectations. Again, the people of Nazareth. So this message of grace is shocking for them. It's not what they assumed. It's not the message they expected to hear. But then, rather than considering further the message and its validity, they turn to Jesus. 
It's almost as if, if you can imagine the people of Nazareth listening to everything Jesus has to say, wow, he has some great things to say, but then stopping sort of mid-sentence and saying, wait a second, who are you? Who are you, this Jesus who we've, who's grown up among us? Remember, Jesus declared in verses 18 and 19 that today this scripture has been, has been fulfilled in your hearing. So now the people of Nazareth are wondering, how in the world can somebody like Jesus make this announcement? How can he claim that in him this has been fulfilled? The people of Nazareth then ask in verse 22, isn't this Joseph's son? The reasoning is essentially this. These are some gracious words that Jesus is speaking, and we're not quite sure how we feel about them. But leaving everything aside for a second, how in the world is it this Jesus who is the, who's, who's claiming this? How in the world could this Jesus, who's grown up among us, who's been in our midst since his youth, how could Jesus be claiming these things? So the question very quickly becomes not just the message, not just questioning the message, but questioning who Jesus is. And it's at this point in the text where Jesus kind of cuts off their reasoning and their thought process, and he cuts to the heart of their target fixation. First, he targets their desire for a sign. They essentially want Jesus to show his stuff. They want him to to prove his point by wowing them a little bit. Apparently, as the text tells us, the people of Nazareth must have heard that Jesus has done some pretty incredible things elsewhere. And now they want, they want a little bit of that for themselves. Maybe they feel like, well, this Jesus has grown up in our midst, so he owes us a little bit of something. So they want, well, they want Jesus to wow him in Nazareth. And this is the idea behind that phrase, physician, heal yourself. Phil Riken notes that in such a time period, physicians and doctors would have been looked at with a lot of skepticism. So if somebody were to go to a doctor and the doctor prescribed a remedy, they would say, physician, heal yourself, meaning, physician, take your own remedy to make sure it's not going to kill me or it's not going to kill you, and then only after that will I then take the remedy. So that's essentially what they're asking Jesus to do. They're asking him to take his own medicine, show, himself, show them a little bit of stuff so before they're going to believe him. But then second, Jesus turns the tables on them. Not only is he not going to show his stuff, not only is he not going to heal himself, as the proverb goes, but he also then calls out their target fixation. Whereas they thought God was going to work unequivocally for them, and that the pagans were the problem who God would vanquish, Jesus essentially says to them, no, 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 no. The pagans aren't the problem, you're the problem. There's one example from the life of David that I think illustrates this well. Uh, in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel 11, uh, David commits his sin with Bathsheba. I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with what went on there. For those of you that don't, what happened is David sees this woman. He likes what he sees. Um, he realizes that she's the wife of Uriah, who's one of his mighty men. He doesn't care. He uh, sleeps with her anyway. And they conceive a child. So then David has Uriah killed and murdered. Well, then after that, in the very next chapter, 2 Samuel 12, Nathan the prophet comes to David and tells him, he begins, Nathan starts with this story that seems kind of, at the outset, maybe somewhat irrelevant to what's going on here, but Nathan tells David this story. He tells, them, he tells him a story about this rich man, this hypothetical rich man who had many flocks and many herds, and despite the excess that this rich man had, a poor man came along who had almost nothing But the rich man decided that he was going to snatch up this poor man's lamb anyway. 
You see, it was a gross injustice indeed, and that's what the prophet Nathan is highlighting. A gross injustice that not only does this rich man who has so much that he would take this, that he would take this poor man's lamb. A gross injustice indeed. But then later, the injustice is heightened because Nathan says that later a traveler came to the rich man. But rather than taking one of his own from the flock, the, the rich man takes, he looks around and says, well, I'm not going to sacrifice, I'm not going to sacrifice my own flock for this traveler. So I'm going to take this poor man's lamb that I just stole. I'm going to sacrifice this, this lamb and then I'm going to feed this traveler with this. Again, this is the injustice then being heightened tenfold again. And David is so upset, as the text indicates, that he interrupts David, that he interrupts Nathan in, in, his, in his storytelling. And David says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then you might know Nathan turns to David and he says, you are that man. You see, this is the effect that Jesus' words have on the people in Nazareth when he goes on to cite this example from Elijah, Elijah's ministry, the prophet Elijah, and the prophet Elisha. See, both of these examples that Jesus cites took place at a precarious time in Israel's history. It says these examples took place when not only was there famine in the land, there was a lack of bread, a lack of food, but there was also spiritual famine in the land. Um, the, the people of Israel, their spiritual poverty was at an alarmingly low point. And both examples, the prophet who's called by God works outside of Israel for a Gentile. So by citing these examples, Jesus is essentially saying to the people of Nazareth, like them, you are the problem. In effect, New Testament commentator Daryl Bach notes that Jesus is essentially saying that the Nazarenes were worse than Syrian lepers and Phoenician widows. You can imagine the fury that would have been evoked after hearing such a thing. And the text indicates that they were indeed furious after hearing such things. And they take Jesus to the brow of a hill with the intent of killing him before Jesus pulls this David Copperfield antic and is able to get away. Well, nevertheless, what Jesus is getting at in his rebuke of the people of Nazareth are the implications of grace. He's spelling out what exactly the implications of grace are. The people of Nazareth were, in effect, relying on their own ethnicity. They were thinking to themselves, we're the covenant people of God. Of course, God is going to be for us. But Jesus says no. The implications of grace for the people of Nazareth are that relying on their own ethnicity, or perhaps in our case, relying on how good we are or how moral we are, relying on the fact that we go to church and that we tithe regularly, or anything else other than faith in Jesus Christ that we're relying upon, Jesus essentially is saying, your target fixation is going to kill you. Remember all the way back in Luke 3, when John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness, and he says to the people, and calls them the broad of vipers, and then he says to them, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And that's essentially the rebuke that Jesus is giving here. Don't begin to say to yourselves, Abraham is our father. Don't begin to say to yourselves that I'm moral or I'm outstanding or I have a great spiritual resume. God must work for me. That's what Jesus is rebuking. Friends, one of the implications of grace that Jesus announces and proceeds to explain 
is that as the popular adage goes, God helps those who help themselves. Jesus would say, absolutely not. The implications of grace are that God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who have come to an end of themselves. He helps those who know their sin and depravity, who know they can't do life on their own. He helps those who know their desperate need for mercy because of their sin, because of living in a world with pain and suffering. He comes to those and reaches out to those who know they can't do life on their own. And to such people, by the Holy Spirit, Christ says, embrace me in faith and repentance. And this is crucial because ultimately, the way we view grace and the way what we believe grace fundamentally is bleeds into the way that we extend grace or don't extend grace to others. In preparation for the sermon, I read a story from um, a former pastor, current commentator, R. Kent Hughes, that I thought was appropriate. <clears throat> he tells this story of a, uh, a church in England, and this story, I guess, happened several decades ago, but there's this church in England, a massive, affluent church in England, um, that also had uh, various other sister churches around town. And most of these other sister churches uh, were situated in impoverished um, environments. They were situated in the slums and places that weren't so good. But nevertheless, once a month on Sunday, during Communion Sundays, all of the churches would gather together in the big church to, um, to partake of Communion together as a whole body. And on one of these Sundays, the pastor noticed that at the Communion rail, that there was a, uh, a former convict who'd been in prison for several years. He was kneeling right next to a Supreme Court justice of England. In fact, the same Supreme Court justice, the story goes to tell us, that put him in prison in the first place. What happened was that this convict had been released from jail, and he'd become a Christian, and now he was worshiping in the service. Well, after the service, the judge said to the pastor, he came up to the pastor and said to the pastor, did you see who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail? What a miracle of grace. And the pastor responds, a marvelous miracle of grace indeed, that former convict. But the, the judge stops him and says, wait a second, I was not referring to him. I was referring to myself. Seeing the pastor stunned, the judge continued, and the judge said this. You see, it's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he understood Jesus could be a savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from my earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, and that I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be, though in fact, I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I'm the greatest miracle. Friends, how do you see yourselves? How do you see grace? If we're resting in our own morality, in our own resume, then not only are we in danger vertically, after all, Jesus calls us in our poverty, but it's also going to be very, very difficult for us to extend grace and mercy to others, such as the condition, it seems, was the case for the people in Nazareth. But the good news, friends, is that we have been extended more mercy than we could ever hope to imagine. To quote 
Jack Miller, who I know Jeff quotes pretty frequently and who I'm indebted to too, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. But in Christ Jesus, you're more loved than you could ever imagine. That's the power of grace, friends. That's the power of the cross. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible mercy and grace that you've extended to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would come to terms with our sin and with our need for mercy if we haven't already done so, but that we would do so not to be crushed in spirit, but so that Jesus Christ and the grace that he gives us would be so much sweeter to us than it functionally is. Father, I pray that as we leave here that, that the gospel wouldn't be something that we remember and then forget until next Sunday, but that each and every day you would wake us up and remind us, one, of our sin and our neediness, but that we would cheer up because of the grace that has met that sin and that neediness. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.